Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, this is Marlene Schwartz. I am director of the Red Center for Food Policy and Obesity. And today I'm very delighted to welcome two special guests. The first is Dr. Kathleen Keller. Kathleen is assistant professor at the Department of Nutritional Sciences and the Department of Food Sciences at Penn State University. And our other guest is Dr. Catherine Loeb. Catherine is Associate Professor of Psychology and Director of the PhD Program in Clinical Psychology at Fairleigh Dickinson University. She's also the Adjunct Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Thanks for joining us. So um, I have a few questions for you guys um, about some of the really interesting research you've been doing recently on one of the challenges that I think faces every American parent, which is how to get their kids to eat vegetables. So Kathleen, can you tell me some about why is it so hard for parents to get their kids to eat vegetables? That's a great question, Marlene, and one that we get from a lot of parents. Um, vegetables have a lot of things going for them that don't necessarily um, compute with what drives food preferences in children. We know that um, children are driven to foods that are sweet and that have calories in them. And uh, vegetables, unfortunately, don't have a lot of sweetness in them. Some even have a little bit of bitter in them, and that is also a, a taste that children don't like from birth. Um, and vegetables also don't have a lot of calories, so it's very difficult for children to learn or develop preferences for vegetables. Um, and if you compare that with something that's sweet or something that has fat and other types of calories in them, um, it's much easier for children to develop preferences for sweeter foods. And so um, we know that we have to work a little bit harder to get children to uh, like vegetables and eat vegetables, and I'm sure every parent uh, can attest to that. You know, I've spoken to some parents who talk about when their children are very, very small that they would eat, you know, different vegetables, baby food. And then it's almost like something happens when they become toddlers and preschoolers. Is there a phenomenon associated with that? Yes. Uh, around the time that children are mobile, they develop uh, a neophobia, which is a fear of new foods. And so this is thought to develop around the time that children might be able to walk and might be able to put things in their mouth that might not necessarily be good. And so lots of parents find that when their children are infants or um, very uh, young age, they can get them to eat lots of different vegetables and the children aren't very picky. But right about the time children are able to start to walk around two or three, um, they start to become very neophobic and wary of trying new foods. And so foods that um, the child might have liked when they were younger, um, it can be very difficult to get them to eat around this age. And so parents often struggle with this, and this sort of sets off a number of dynamics in the family um, that can, um, can be very stressful for the, the parents as well as for children around that time. So another thing that starts to happen around that time is kids also become the targets of a lot of marketing, food marketing directed at them, which is, you know, 90% of the time is for unhealthy foods. But you did a study where you tried to use that marketing power in a positive way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So we, um, uh, I'm very interested in how we might be able to change the way foods are presented to children to somehow increase the incentives behind trying fruits and vegetables, and at the same time to decrease the incentives around trying foods that are typically marketed to children. And so what we did is we actually provided parents um, in an experimental setting uh, with fruits and vegetables that they could take home, and we packaged the fruits and vegetables uh, with 
with containers that had the child's favorite um, cartoon characters on them. And we included sticker incentives in the packages that children could, um, t- could collect and then trade in for a prize later on. Um, and what we found just by doing this very simple packaging, repackaging of the vegetables, um, is that we were able to get children who did not like uh, fruits and vegetables or did not eat very many fruits and vegetables to actually increase their servings by about one to two servings per day just by doing simple changes. And what's really nice is that you know parents might hear this and they would think, well, that would be a lot of time and uh, I wouldn't necessarily want to do that every day. It would also waste a lot of packaging. But what we found is that after a few weeks of giving the fruits and vegetables in the, the fun, child-friendly packaging to the child, um, when we took the the packaging away, we didn't find that kids uh, went back to eating the way they were at the beginning of the study. We actually found that they continued to increase their intake. So we think that this packaging is essentially a way for kids who are neophobic or picky to um, get over this initial feeling uh, of apprehension about trying a, a new food. And, you know, because they recognize the cartoon character and this is something that, you know, is a a friendly character to them, they'll try the food initially and and then eat a little bit of it every day. And we know that repeat tasting consumption of something helps children get over neophobia and that once children become familiar with something that they um, develop a preference for it and and then they will actually eat this food more regularly. So even though these studies are really new at this point, we're hoping to continue to develop these methods and to eventually be able to help parents um, implement these strategies in the home. Well, I think it's really exciting that you're doing this research, and I know a lot of parents are going to be really interested in trying out some of these strategies. And I think one of the nicest take-home messages that you just reinforced is that these are tools you use to kind of get over that hump, the neophobia hump, um, but that then once kids you know, taste these foods a variety of times and they're paired with this positive character that they then actually can go on. Because I think some parents probably feel like, you know, I'm not going to spend the next 18 years, you know, putting my kids' food in special characters. So um, so that is really neat. It'll be, it'll be neat to see how long it takes and, you know, sort of how long parents need to hang in there. So I'd like to turn now to you, Catherine, and ask you some Um, about this idea that you've been studying called the optimal default. What does an optimal default mean? Sure. Well, this um, idea um, originated in uh, other arenas beyond childhood obesity. Um, In fact, one of the examples that's often cited to crystallize this um, is from organ donation, and I'll mention that in a minute. Uh, The concept involves positioning choices so that the um, uh, so that the most easy to access automatic option is the one that is in the individual or society's best interest, um, while not restricting free choice. So for instance, in countries where um, to become an organ donor, you are um, automatically enrolled and you can opt out by signing, let's say, the back of your driver's license, um, the majority of individuals in those countries are organ donors. In countries like ours where you have to actively opt in and the default is that you're not an organ donor unless you declare yourself to be one, a very small minority of the population becomes organ donors. In both scenarios, uh, the choice is there, but which choice is presented as the automatic one that you have to take active steps to circumvent is where the difference lies, and it seems to be a very powerful effect. So have 
researchers used this to try to affect people's eating behavior? Yes, we're trying to harness this and conducting a series of experiments um, in the real world with real parents and children in particular, and young adults to see whether we can capitalize on this phenomenon to increase the likelihood of healthy choices. So how would you do that? Can you give us an example of one of your studies? Sure. Um, I can give you two experiments that we did with um, parents of young children, um, and we had them come into a local community center. And uh, we tried in the first study to kind of mimic what might happen in a restaurant environment um, where usually um, a children's menu is presented separately. So in our study, we had two versions of a menu. The first one um, had in large print a very healthy array of foods. And at the bottom, there in small but very readable print, uh, there were alternatives that were much, much less healthy. And we said the first part is what your child was automatically registered to receive. And if you want to switch to the other array, please ask your server. In the other condition, it was flipped, where the automatic meal that was going to be served to the children uh, was less healthy, and parents had to take active steps of asking the server for the healthier array of foods. And what we found is that simply positioning one option as the default was incredibly influential in parents' decisions about what to feed their child. So whatever was the default choice was tended to be what parents gave their children. So you basically found that the vast majority of the time, the parents just went ahead and gave their children whatever looked like it was the regular meal. Exactly. Whatever looked like was the standard meal based on how we simply designed the menu. Um, We also replicated this um, finding in physical activity for kids where we had other parents and children come in and um, the default activity for the child was either um, a physical activity that we called fun fitness or watching a video. Um, And whichever one we presented as the default was what parents tended to stick with. You know, it's just so interesting because a lot of times in this arena, people argue that kids need choices, parents need choices. You can't just go in and tell people what to do. And what's what's so beautiful about this is the choice is still there. Um, But it's clear that, you know, if the person isn't, you know, actively interested in doing one or the other, that they will just go ahead and do the automatic thing. And as long as that's the healthier option, um, it'll be a big benefit. Now, I know you also looked at um, trying to teach the parents particular skills to really, you know, understand their responsibility in helping their children make the healthier choice and and look at the effect of that. Can you talk a little bit about what you told parents? Sure. We tried in these experiments to see whether it made a difference uh, to teach parents not just about the fundamentals of good nutrition or in the exercise experiment, the importance of regular physical activity for children, but also to really emphasize that parents' role in that process of making good choices on behalf of their children. Um, We would consider these to be empowering messages for parents, um, that they can ultimately make the choice on behalf of their offspring and help them achieve better health. Um, But the default was so powerful of an effect that it's very hard to know whether those empowering messages actually made a difference. So when you when you looked at the data, there wasn't like a clear interaction where you found that the parents who'd gotten the empowering message were, you know, going to definitely switch from the unhealthy default to the 
healthy choice. Exactly. And this is the data really are in opposition to what is emphasized out there in the real world, where parents are often told um, to uh, maybe do better for their child in, in uh, choices, but the environment is set up so that the exact opposite occurs in fast food restaurants, in walking down the cereal aisle with your child. Um, so it really seems like we can harness the energy of this effect to do um, good on behalf of children's health. And I should note that this, the idea for the application of optimal defaults to childhood obesity came from the Rudd Center. Well, we certainly um, thought it was a good theory, and it's been great to see some studies to really take that and run with it that, that you guys have done, and particularly being able to test the impact of the default versus the impact of this sort of parent education. Um, clearly, it seems the answer is you need both. The parents need to understand that it's their responsibility. They need to see the importance of making healthy choices, but the environment can either back them up or sabotage them. Exactly. And so the default can really both in both of the studies that you guys described that you're using the default, you're using the power of marketing to really help parents as opposed to making their jobs harder. Well, thank you both so much for joining us here at the Rudd Center. Again, this is Marlene Schwartz. I'm the director of the Rudd Center. And you can go to our website, www.yaleruddcenter.org to learn more about us and download other podcasts. Thank you.